0: Welcome to the 34th reading of the Institutes of Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 3, Chapter 20, Section 25. This Reformation Audio Resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions in the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing, and which, we pray, draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by Him. John 14:6. Section 25. The other passages of Scripture which they employ to defend their error are miserably rested. Jacob, they say, asks for the sons of Joseph... Let my name be named on them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. Genesis 48, verse 16 First, let us see what the nature of this invocation was among the Israelites. They do not implore their fathers to bring succor to them, but they beseech God to remember his servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their example, therefore, gives no countenance to those who use addresses to the saints themselves. But such being the dullness of these blocks that they comprehend not what it is to invoke the name of Jacob, nor why it is to be invoked, it is not strange that they blunder thus childishly as to the mode of doing it. The expression repeatedly occurs in Scripture. Isaiah speaks of women being called by the name of men when they have them for husbands and live under their protection. Isaiah 4 verse 1 The calling of the name of Abraham over the Israelites consists in referring the origin of their race to him, and holding him in distinguished remembrance as their author and parent. Jacob does not do so from any anxiety to extend the celebrity of his name, but because he knows that all the happiness of his posterity consisted in the inheritance of the covenant which God had made with them, saying that this would give them the sum of all blessings, he prays that they may be regarded as of his race this being nothing else, than to transmit the succession of the covenant to them. They again, when they make mention of this subject in their prayers, do not betake themselves to the intercession of the dead, but call to remembrance that covenant in which their most merciful Father undertakes to be kind and propitious to them for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How little, in other respects, the saints trusted to the merits of their fathers, the public voice of the church declares in the prophet. Quote, "...doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not. Thou, O Lord, art our father, our redeemer." Unquote. Isaiah 63, verse 16 And while the church thus speaks, she at the same time adds, quote, "...return for thy servant's sake," Unquote. not thinking of anything like intercession, but adverting only to the benefit of the covenant." Now, indeed, when we have the Lord Jesus, in whose hand the eternal covenant of mercy was not only made, but confirmed, what better name can we bear before us in our prayers? And since those good doctors would make out by these words that the patriarchs are intercessors, I should like them to tell me why, in so great a multitude, no place whatever is given to Abraham, the father of the church. We know well from what a crew they select their intercessors. Let them then tell me what consistency there is in neglecting and rejecting Abraham, whom God preferred to all others and raised to the highest degree of honor. The only reason is that, as it was plain there was no such practice in the ancient church, they thought proper to conceal the novelty of the practice by saying nothing of the patriarchs, as if by a mere diversity of names they could excuse a practice at once novel and impure. They sometimes also object that God is entreated to have mercy on his people. Quote, For David's sake, unquote. Psalm 132, verses 1 and 10. This is so far from supporting their error that it is the strongest refutation of it. We must consider the character which David bore. He is set apart from the whole body of the faithful to establish the covenant which God made in his hand. Thus, regard is had to the covenant rather than to the individual. Under him, as a type of sole intercessor of Christ, is asserted. But what was peculiar to David as a type of Christ is certainly inapplicable to others. Section 26. But some seem to be moved by the fact that the prayers of saints are often said to have been heard. Why? Because they prayed. Quote, they cried unto thee, unquote, says the psalmist. Quote, and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded, unquote. Psalm 22 verse 5. Let us also pray after their example. That like them we too may be heard. Those men, on the contrary, absurdly argue that none will be heard but those who have been heard already. How much better does James argue? Quote, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Unquote. James 5 verses 17 and 18 What? Does he infer that Elias possessed some peculiar privilege and that we must have recourse to him for the use of it? By no means. He shows the perpetual efficacy of a pure and pious prayer that we may be induced in like manner to pray. For the kindness and readiness of God to hear others is malignantly interpreted, if their example does not inspire us with stronger confidence in His promise, since His declaration is not that He will incline His ear to one or two or a few individuals, but to all who call upon His name. In this ignorance, they are the less excusable, because they seem, as it were, avowedly to contemn the many admonitions of Scripture. David was repeatedly delivered by the power of God. Was this to give that power to him that we might be delivered on his application? Very different is his affirmation. Quote, The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. Unquote. Psalm 142, verse 7. Again, quote, The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Unquote. Psalm 52, verse 6. Quote, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. Unquote. Psalm 34, verse 6 In the Psalms are many similar prayers in which David calls upon God to give him what he asks. For this reason viz that the righteous may not be put to shame, but by his example encouraged to hope. Here let one passage suffice. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Psalm 32 verse 6 This passage I have quoted the more readily, because those ravers who employ their hireling tongues in defense of the papacy are not ashamed to adduce it in proof of the intercession of the dead, as if David intended anything more than to show the benefit which he shall obtain from the divine clemency and condescension when he shall have been heard. In general, we must hold that the experience of the grace of God as well towards ourself as towards others tends in no slight degree to confirm our faith in His promises. I do not quote the many passages in which David sets forth the loving kindness of God to him as a ground of confidence as they will readily occur to every reader of this psalms. Jacob had previously taught the same thing by his own example. Quote, I am not worthy of the least of all thy mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. Or with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Genesis 32 verse 10 He indeed alleges the promise, but not the promise only. For he at the same time adds the effect to animate him with greater confidence in the future kindness of God. God is not like men who grow weary of their liberality, or whose means of exercising it become exhausted that he is to be estimated by his own nature, as David properly does when he says, quote, Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth, unquote. Psalm 31, verse 5. After ascribing the praise of his salvation to God, he adds that he is true. For were he not ever like himself, his past favor would not be an infallible ground for confidence in prayer. But when we know that as often as he assists us, He gives us a specimen and proof of His goodness and faithfulness. There is no reason to fear that our hope will be ashamed or frustrated. Section 27 On the whole, since Scripture places the principal part of worship in the invocation of God, this being the office of piety which He requires of us in preference to all sacrifices, it is manifest sacrilege to offer prayer to others. Hence it is said in the psalm, If we have forgotten the name of our God, or stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall not God search this out? Psalm 44, verses 20 and 21. Again, since it is only in faith that God desires to be invoked, and He distinctly enjoins us to frame our prayers according to the rule of His Word, in fine, since faith is founded on the Word, and is the parent of right prayer, the moment we decline from the Word, our prayers are impure. But we have already shown that if we consult the whole volume of Scripture, we shall find that God claims this honor to Himself alone. In regard to the office of intercession, we have also seen that it is peculiar to Christ, and that no prayer is agreeable to God, which He, as mediator, does not sanctify. And though believers mutually offer up prayers to God in behalf of their brethren, we have shown that this derogates in no respect from the sole intercession of Christ, because all trust to that intercession in commending themselves as well as others to God. Moreover, we have shown that this is ignorantly transferred to the dead, of whom we nowhere read that they were commanded to pray for us. The scripture often exhorts us to offer up mutual prayers, but says not one syllable concerning the dead nay james tacitly excludes the dead when he combines the two things to quote confess our sins one to another and to pray one for another unquote, james 5 16 hence it is sufficient to condemn this error that the beginning of right prayer springs from faith and that faith comes by the hearing of the word of god in which there is no mention of fictitious intercession superstition having rashly adopted intercessors who have not been divinely appointed While the scripture abounds in various forms of prayer, we find no example of this intercession without which papists think there is no prayer. Moreover, it is evident that this superstition is the result of distrust, because they are either not contented with Christ as an intercessor, or have altogether robbed Him of this honor. This last is easily proved by their effrontery in maintaining as the strongest of all their arguments for the intercession of the saints, that we are unworthy of familiar access to God. This indeed we acknowledge to be most true, but we thence infer that they leave nothing to Christ because they consider His intercession as nothing unless it is supplemented by that of George and Hippolyte and similar phantoms. Section 28 But though prayer is properly confined to vows and supplications, yet so strong is the affinity between petition and thanksgiving that both may be conveniently comprehended under one name. For the forms which Paul enumerates... See 1 Timothy 2 verse 1 Fall into the first member of this division. By prayer and supplication we pour out our desires before God, asking as well those things which tend to promote His glory and display His name as the benefits which contribute to our advantage. By thanksgiving we duly celebrate His kindnesses toward us, ascribing to His liberality every blessing which enters into our lot. David accordingly includes both in one sentence. Quote, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Psalm 50, verse 15 Scripture, not without reason, commands us to use both continually. We have already described the greatness of our want, while experience itself proclaims the straits which press us on every side to be so numerous and so great that all have sufficient ground to send forth sighs and groans to God without intermission and suppliantly implore Him. Or even should they be exempt from adversity, still the holiest ought to be stimulated first by their sins, and secondly by the innumerable assaults of temptation to long for a remedy. The sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving can never be interrupted without guilt, since God never ceases to load us with favor upon favor so as to force us to gratitude however slow and sluggish we may be. In short, so great and widely diffused are the riches of His liberality towards us, so marvelous and wondrous the miracles which we behold on every side, that we never can want a subject of materials for praise and thanksgiving. To make this somewhat clearer, since all our hopes and resources are placed in God, this has already been fully proved, so that neither our persons nor our interests can prosper without His blessing, we must constantly submit ourselves and our all to Him. Then whatever we deliberate, speak, or do should be deliberated, spoken, and done under His hand and will, in fine, under the hope of His assistance. God has pronounced a curse upon all who, confiding in themselves or others, form plans and resolutions, who, without regarding His will or invoking His aid, either plan or attempt to execute. James 4, verse 14 Isaiah 30, verse 1 and 31, verse 1 and since, as has already been observed, he receives the honor which is due when he is acknowledged to be the author of all good, it follows that, in deriving all good from his hand, we ought continually to express our thankfulness, and that we have no right to use the benefits which proceed from his liberality if we do not assiduously proclaim his praise and give him thanks, these being the ends for which they are given. When Paul declares that every creature of God quote, is sanctified by the word of God and prayer unquote, 1 Timothy 4 verse 5 he intimates that without the word and prayer none of them are holy and pure word being used metonymically for our faith Hence David, on experiencing the loving kindness of the Lord elegantly declares quote, he hath put a new song in my mouth unquote, Psalm 40 verse 3 intimating that our silence is malignant When we leave His blessing unpraised, seeing every blessing He bestows is a new ground of thanksgiving. Thus Isaiah, proclaiming the singular mercies of God, says, "Quote: Sing unto the Lord a new song." Unquote. In the same sense, David says in another passage, "Quote: O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth Thy praise." Unquote. Psalm fifty-one, verse fifteen. In like manner, Hezekiah and Jonah declare that they will regard it as the end of their deliverance, quote, to celebrate the goodness of God with songs in his temple, unquote. Isaiah 38, verse 20, and Jonah 2, verse 10. David lays down a general rule for all believers in these words, quote, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord, unquote. Psalm 116, verses 12 and 13. This rule the church follows in another psalm. Quote, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the heathen, to give thanks unto thy holy name and to triumph in thy praise. Unquote. Psalm 106, verse 47. Again, quote, he will regard the prayer of the destitute, and not despise their prayer. This shall be written for the generation to come, and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. Unquote. Quote, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion, and his praise in Jerusalem. Unquote. Psalm 102, verses 18 and 21. Nay, whenever believers beseech the Lord to do anything for His own name's sake, as they declare themselves unworthy of obtaining it in their own name. So they oblige themselves to give thanks and promise to make the right use of his loving kindness by being the heralds of it. Thus Hosea, speaking of the future redemption of the church, says, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Hosea 14, verse 2. Not only do our tongues proclaim the kindness of God, but they naturally inspire us with love to him. Quote, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications Psalm 116, verse one hundred and sixteen. In another passage speaking of the help which he had experienced, he says Quote, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength Unquote. Psalm eighteen. Verse 1. No praise will ever please God that does not flow from this feeling of love. Nay we must attend to the declaration of Paul that all wishes are vicious and perverse which are not accompanied with thanksgiving. His words are, Quote, In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Unquote. Philippians 4, verse 6. Because many, under the influence of moroseness, weariness, impatience, bitter grief, and fear, use murmuring in their prayers, he enjoins us so to regulate our feelings as cheerfully to bless God, even before obtaining what we ask. But if this connection ought always to subsist in full vigor between things that are almost contrary, the more sacred is the tie which binds us to celebrate the praises of God whenever He grants our requests. And as we have already shown that our prayers, which otherwise would be polluted, are sanctified by the intercession of Christ, so the Apostle, by enjoining us, quote, to offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, unquote, by Christ, Hebrews 13, verse 15, reminds us that without the intervention of his priesthood our lips are not pure enough to celebrate the name of God. Hence we infer that a monstrous delusion prevails among papists, the great majority of whom wonder when Christ is called an intercessor. The reason why Paul enjoins, quote, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, unquote. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 17 and 18 Is because He would have us with the utmost assiduity at all times, in every place, in all things, and under all circumstances, direct our prayers to God, to expect all the things which we desire from Him, and when obtained, ascribe them to Him, thus furnishing perpetual grounds for prayer and praise. Section 29. This assiduity in prayer, though it specially refers to the peculiar private prayers of individuals, extends also in some measure to the public prayers of the Church. These, it may be said, cannot be continual, and ought not to be made except in the manner which, for the sake of order, has been established by public consent. This I admit, and hence certain hours are fixed beforehand, hours which, though indifferent in regard to God, are necessary for the use of man that the general convenience may be consulted and all things be done in the church, as Paul enjoins, quote, decently and in order, unquote. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40. But there is nothing in this to prevent each church from being now and then stirred up to a more frequent use of prayer and being more zealously affected under the impulse of some great necessity of perseverance and prayer which is much akin to assiduity, we shall speak towards the close of the chapter see sections 51 and 52 this assiduity, moreover is very different from the greek word beta alpha tau tau omicron lambda omicron gamma iota alpha logia, vain speaking which our savior has prohibited matthew 6 verse 7 For he does not to there forbid us to pray long or frequently or with great fervor, but warns us against supposing that we can extort anything from God by importuning him with garrulous loquacity, as if he were to be persuaded after the manner of men. We know that hypocrites, because they consider not that they have to do with God, offer up their prayers as pompously as if it were part of a triumphal show. The Pharisee, who thanked God that he was not as other men, no doubt proclaimed his praises before men as if he had wished to gain a reputation for sanctity by his prayers. Hence that vain speaking, which, for a similar reason, prevails so much in the papacy in the present day, some vainly spinning out the time by a reiteration of the same frivolous prayers and others employing a long series of verbiage for vulgar display. This childish garrulity being a mockery of God, it is not strange that it is prohibited in the church, in order that every feeling there expressed may be sincere, proceeding from the inmost heart. Akin to this abuse is another which our Savior also condemns, namely, when hypocrites for the sake of ostentation court the presence of many witnesses, and would sooner pray in the marketplace than pray without applause the true object of prayer being, as we have already said in section 4 and 5, to carry our thoughts directly to God, whether to celebrate His praise or implore His aid, we can easily see that its primary seat is in the mind and heart, or rather that prayer itself is properly an effusion and manifestation of internal feeling before Him, who is the searcher of hearts. Hence, as has been said, when our Divine Master was pleased to lay down the best rule for prayer, His injunction was, Quote, Enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Matthew 6, verse 6. Dissuading us from the example of hypocrites who sought the applause of men by an ambitious ostentation in prayer, he adds the better course. Enter thy chamber, shut thy door, and there pray. By these words, as I understand them, He taught us to seek a prayer of retirement which might enable us to turn all our thoughts inwards, and enter deeply into our hearts, promising that God would hold converse with the feelings of our mind, of which the body ought to be the temple. He meant not to deny that it may be expedient to pray in other places also, but he shows that prayer is somewhat of a secret nature, having its chief seat in the mind, and requiring a tranquility far removed from the turmoil of ordinary cares." and hence it was not without cause that our Lord himself, when he would engage more earnestly in prayer, withdrew into a retired spot beyond the bustle of the world, thus reminding us, by his example, that we are not to neglect those helps which enable the mind, in itself too much disposed to wander, to become sincerely intent on prayer. Meanwhile, as he abstained not from prayer when the occasion required it, though he were in the midst of a crowd, so must we, whenever there is need, lift up, quote, pure hands, unquote. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, at all places. And hence we must hold that he who declines to pray in the public meeting of the saints knows not what it is to pray apart in retirement or at home. On the other hand, he who neglects to pray alone and in private however sedulously he frequents public meetings there gives his prayers to the wind because he defers more to the opinion of man than to the secret judgment of god still lest the public prayers of the church should be held in contempt the lord anciently bestowed upon them the most honorable appellation especially when he called the temple the quote, house of prayer unquote, isaiah 56 verse 7 for by this expression he both showed that the duty of prayer is a principal part of his worship, and that to enable believers to engage in it with one consent, his temple is set up before them as a kind of banner. A noble promise was also added, quote, Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Sion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed, unquote. Psalm 65, verse 1. By these words the psalmist reminds us that the prayers of the church are never in vain because god always furnishes his people with materials for a song of joy but although the shadows of the law have ceased yet because god was pleased by this ordinance to foster the unity of the faith among us also there can be no doubt that the same promise belongs to us a promise which christ sanctioned with his own lips and which paul declares to be perpetually in force section 30 As God and His Word enjoins common prayer, so public temples are the places destined for the performance of them. And hence those who refuse to join with the people of God in this observance have no ground for the pretext that they enter their chamber in order that they may obey the command of the Lord. For he who promises to grant whatsoever two or three assembled in his name shall ask, Matthew 18, verse 20, declares that he by no means despises the prayers which are publicly offered up, provided there be no ostentation or catching at human applause, and provided there be a true and sincere affection in the secret recesses of the heart. If this is the legitimate use of churches, and it certainly is, we must, on the other hand, beware of imitating the practice which commenced some centuries ago of imagining that churches are the proper dwellings of God, where He is more ready to listen to us, or of attaching to them some kind of secret sanctity, which makes prayer there more holy. For seeing we are the true temples of God, we must pray in ourselves if we would invoke God in His holy temple. Let us leave such gross ideas to the Jews or the heathen, knowing that we have a command to pray without distinction of place, quote, in spirit and in truth, unquote. John 4, verse 23. It is true that by the order of God the temple was anciently dedicated for the offerings of prayers and sacrifices, but this was at a time when the truth, which being now fully manifested we are not permitted to confine to any material temple, lay hid under the figure of shadows. Even the temple was not represented to the Jews as confining the presence of God within its walls, but was meant to train them to contemplate the image of the true temple. Accordingly, a severe rebuke is administered both by Isaiah and Stephen to those who thought that God could in any way dwell in temples made with hands. Isaiah 66 verse 2 and Acts 7 verse 48 section 31 hence it is perfectly clear that neither words nor singing if used in prayer are of the least consequence or avail one iota with God unless they proceed from deep feeling in the heart nay rather they provoke his anger against us if they come from the lips and throat only since this is to abuse his sacred name and hold his majesty in derision this we infer from the words of Isaiah which though their meaning is of wider extent go to rebuke this vice also Quote, Forasmuch as as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of man, therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work, and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Isaiah 29, verse 13 still we do not condemn words or singing but rather greatly commend them provided the feeling of the mind goes along with them for in this way the thought of god is kept alive in our minds which from their fickle and versatile nature soon relax and are distracted by various objects unless various means are used to support them besides Since the glory of God ought in a manner to be displayed in each part of our body, the special service to which the tongue should be devoted is that of singing and speaking, inasmuch as it has been expressly created to declare and proclaim the praise of God. This employment of the tongue is chiefly in the public services which are performed in the meeting of the saints. In this way the God whom we serve in one spirit and one faith, we glorify together as it were with one voice and one mouth and that openly, so that each may in turn receive the confession of his brother's faith, and be invited and incited to imitate it. Section 32. It is certain that the use of singing in churches, which I may mention in passing, is not only very ancient, but was also used by the apostles, as we may gather from the words of Paul. Quote, I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. In like manner he says to the Colossians, quote, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, unquote. Colossians 3, verse 16. In the former passage he enjoins us to sing with the voice and the heart, and the latter he commends spiritual songs by which the pious mutually edify each other. That it was not a universal practice, however, is attested by Augustine, who states that the Church of Milan first began to use singing in the time of Ambrose when the Orthodox faith being persecuted by Justina, the mother of Valentinian, the vigils of the people were more frequent than usual, and that the practice was afterwards followed by the other Western churches. He had said a little before that the custom came from the East. He also intimates that it was received in Africa in his own time, his words are, quote, Hilarious, a man of tribunicial rank, assailed with the bitterest invectives he could use the custom which then began to exist at Carthage of singing hymns from the book of Psalms at the altar, either before the oblation or when it was distributed to the people. I answered him at the request of my brethren, unquote. And certainly, if singing is tempered to a gravity befitting the presence of God and angels, it both gives dignity and grace to sacred actions, and has a very powerful tendency to stir up the mind to true zeal and order in prayer. We must, however, carefully beware, lest our ears be mere intent on the music than our minds on the spiritual meaning of the words. Augustine confesses that the fear of this danger sometimes made him wish for the introduction of a practice observed by Athanasius who ordered the reader to use only a gentle inflection of the voice more akin to recitation than singing. But on again, considering how many advantages were derived from singing, he inclined to the other side. If this moderation is used, there cannot be a doubt that the practice is most sacred and salutary. On the other hand, songs composed merely to tickle and delight the ear are unbecoming the majesty of the church and cannot but be most displeasing to God. Section 33 it is also plain that the public prayers are not to be couched in Greek among the Latins, nor in Latin among the French or English, as hitherto has been everywhere practiced, but in the vulgar tongue so that all present may understand them, since they ought to be used for the edification of the whole church, which cannot be in the least degree benefited by a sound not understood. Those who are not moved by any reason of humanity or charity ought at least to be somewhat moved by the authority of Paul, whose words are by no means ambiguous. When thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say, Amen, at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? For thou verily givest thanks, but the other is not edified. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 16 and 17. How then can one sufficiently admire the unbridled license of the papists? who, while the Apostle publicly protests against it, hesitate not to brawl out the most verbose prayers in a foreign tongue, prayers of which they themselves sometimes do not understand one syllable, and which they have no wish that others should understand. Different is the course which Paul prescribes. Quote, What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Meaning, By the Spirit the special gift of tongues, which some who had received it abused when they dissevered it from the mind, that is, the understanding. The principle we must always hold is that in all prayer, public and private, the tongue without the mind must be displeasing to God. Moreover, the mind must be so incited as in order of thought, far to surpass what the tongue is able to express. Lastly, the tongue is not even necessary to private prayer unless insofar as the internal feeling is insufficient for incitement, or the vehemence of the incitement carries the utterance of the tongue along with it. For although the best prayers are sometimes without utterance, yet when the feeling of the mind is overpowering, the tongue spontaneously breaks forth into utterance, and our other members into gesture. Hence that dubious muttering of Hannah. 1 Samuel 1, verse 13, something similar to which is experienced by all the saints when concise and abrupt expressions escape from them. The bodily gestures usually observed in prayer such as kneeling and uncovering of the head are exercises by which we attempt to rise to higher veneration of God. Section 34 We must now attend not only to a surer method but also form of prayer that, namely, which our Heavenly Father has delivered to us by His beloved Son, and in which we may recognize His boundless goodness and condescension. Matthew 6, verse 9, and Luke 11, verse 2. Besides admonishing us and exhorting us to seek Him in our every necessity, As children are wont to betake themselves to the protection of their parents when oppressed with any anxiety, seeing that we are not fully aware how great our poverty was, or what was right, or, for our interest to ask, he has provided for this ignorance. That wherein our capacity failed, he has sufficiently supplied." For he has given us a form in which is set before us as in a picture everything which it is lawful to wish, everything which is conducive to our interest, everything which it is necessary to demand. From his goodness and this respect we derive the great comfort of knowing that as we ask almost in his words, we ask nothing that is absurd or foreign or unseasonable, nothing in short, that is not agreeable to him. Plato, seeing the ignorance of men and presenting their desires to God, desires which, if granted, would often be most injurious to them, declares the best form of prayer to be that which an ancient poet has furnished. Quote, O King Jupiter, give what is best, whether we wish it or wish it not, but avert from us what is evil, even though we ask it. Unquote. This heathen shows his wisdom in discerning how dangerous it is to ask of God what our own passion dictates while at the same time He reminds us of our unhappy condition in not being able to open our lips before God without danger unless His Spirit instruct us how to pray aright. Romans 8, verse 26 The higher value, therefore, ought we to set on the privilege when the only begotten Son of God puts words into our lips and thus relieves our minds of all hesitation. Section 35 This form, or rule of prayer, is composed of six petitions. For I am prevented from agreeing with those who divided into seven by the adversative mode of diction used by the evangelist, who appears to have intended to unite the two members together, as if he had said, Do not allow us to be overcome by temptation, but rather bring assistance to our frailty, and deliver us that we may not fall. Ancient writers also agree with us that what is added by Matthew as a seventh head is to be considered as explanatory of the sixth petition. But though in every part of the prayer the first place is assigned to the glory of God, still this is more especially the object of the three first petitions, in which we are to look to the glory of God alone, without any reference to what is called our own advantage. The three remaining petitions are devoted to our interest, and properly relate to things which it is useful for us to ask. When we ask that the name of God may be hallowed as God wishes to prove whether we love and serve Him freely, or from the hope of reward, we are not to think at all of our own interest. We must set His glory before our eyes and keep them intent upon it alone. In the other similar petitions, this is the only manner in which we ought to be affected. It is true that in this way our own interest is greatly promoted, because when the name of God is hallowed in the way we ask, our own sanctification is also thereby promoted. But in regard to this advantage we must, as I have said, shut our eyes, and be in a manner blind so as not even to see it. And hence were all hope of our private advantage cut off, we still should never cease to wish and pray for this hallowing, and everything else which pertains to the glory of God. We have examples in Moses and Paul who did not count it grievous to turn away their eyes and minds from themselves and with intense and fervent zeal long for death if by their loss the kingdom and glory of God might be promoted. Exodus 32 verse 32 and Romans 9 verse 3 On the other hand, When we ask for daily bread, although we desire what is advantageous for ourselves, we ought also especially to seek the glory of God, so much so that we would not ask at all unless it were to turn to His glory. Let us now proceed to an exposition of the prayer. Section 36 Our Father, which art in heaven. The first thing suggested at the very outset is, as we have already said in sections 17-19, through that all our prayers to God ought only to be presented in the name of Christ, as there is no other name which can recommend them. In calling God our Father, we certainly plead the name of Christ. For with what confidence could any man call God his Father? Who would have the presumption to arrogate to himself the honor of a son of God were we not gratuitously adopted as his sons in Christ? He being the true Son has been given to us as a brother, so that that which He possesses as His own by nature becomes ours by adoption, if we embrace this great mercy with firm faith. As John says, quote, As many as receive Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in His name. Unquote. John 1 verse 12 Hence He both calls Himself our Father, and is pleased to be so called by us, by this delightful name relieving us of all distrust, since nowhere can a stronger affection be found than in a father. Hence, too, He could not have given us a stronger testimony of His boundless love than in calling us His sons. But His love towards us is so much the greater and more excellent than that of earthly parents the farther He surpasses all men in goodness and mercy. Isaiah 63, verse 18 Earthly parents, laying aside all paternal affection, might abandon their offspring. He will never abandon us. Psalm 27, verse 10 saying he cannot deny himself, for we have his promise. Quote, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Unquote. Matthew 7, verse 11 And my commander and the prophet Quote, Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will not I forget thee? Unquote. Isaiah, forty nine, verse fifteen. But if we are his sons, then as a son cannot betake himself to the protection of a stranger and a foreigner without at the same time complaining of his father's cruelty or poverty, so we cannot ask assistance from any other quarter than from him unless we would upbraid him with poverty or want of means or cruelty and excessive austerity. Section 37 Nor let us allege that we are justly rendered timid by consciousness of sin, by which our Father, though mild and merciful, is daily offended. For if among men a son cannot have a better advocate to plead his cause with his father and cannot employ a better intercessor to regain his lost favor than if he come himself suppliant and downcast acknowledging his fault to implore the mercy of his father whose paternal feelings cannot but be moved by such entreaties what will that quote father of all mercies and God of all comfort unquote do 2nd Corinthians 1 verse 3 Will he not rather listen to the tears and groans of his children, when supplicating for themselves, especially seeing he invites and exhorts us to do so, than to any advocacy of others to whom the timid have recourse, not without some semblance of despair, because they are distrustful of their father's mildness and clemency? The exuberance of his paternal kindness he sets before us in the parable. Luke 15, verse 20 When the father with open arms received the son, who had gone away from him, wasted his substance in riotous living, and in all ways grievously sinned against him. He waits not till pardon is asked in words, but, anticipating the request, recognizes him afar off, runs to meet him, consoles him, and restores him to favor. By setting before us this admirable example of mildness in a man, He designed to show in how much greater abundance we may expect it from Him, who is not only a father but the best and most merciful of all fathers, however ungrateful, rebellious, and wicked sons we may be, provided only we throw ourselves upon His mercy. And the better to assure us that He is such a father if we are Christians, He has been pleased to be called not only a father but our father, as if we were pleading with Him after this manner. O Father, who art possessed of so much affection for Thy children, and art so ready to forgive. We, thy children, approach thee, and present our requests, fully persuaded that thou hast no other feelings towards us than those of a father, though we are unworthy of such a parent. But, as our narrow hearts are incapable of comprehending such boundless favor, Christ is not only the earnest and pledge of our adoption, but also gives us the Spirit as a witness of this adoption, that through Him we may freely cry aloud, Abba, Father. Whenever, therefore, we are restrained by any feeling of hesitation, let us remember to ask of Him that He may correct our timidity and placing us under the magnanimous guidance of the Spirit, enable us to pray boldly. Section 38 The instruction given us, however, is not that every individual in particular is to call Him Father, but rather that we are all in common to call Him our Father. By this we are reminded how strong the feeling of brotherly love between us ought to be, since we are all alike by the same mercy and free kindness the children of such a father. For if he from whom we all obtain whatever is good is our common father, Matthew 23 verse 9, everything which has been distributed to us, we should be prepared to communicate to each other as far as occasion demands. But if we are thus desirous as we ought to stretch out our hand and give assistance to each other, there is nothing by which we can more benefit our brethren than by committing them to the care and protection of the best of parents, since if he is propitious and favorable nothing more can be desired. And indeed we owe this also to our Father. For as he who truly and from the heart loves the father of a family extends the same love and goodwill to all his household, so the zeal and affection which we feel for our heavenly parent, it becomes us to extend towards his people, his family, and, in fine, his heritage, which he has honored so highly as to give them the appellation of the quote, fullness, unquote, of his only begotten Son, Ephesians 1, verse 23. Let the Christian then so regulate his prayers as to make them common and embrace all who are his brethren in Christ, not only those whom at present he sees and knows to be such, but all men who are alive upon the earth. What God has determined with regard to them is beyond our knowledge, but to wish and hope the best concerning them is both pious and humane. Still it becomes us to regard with special affection those who are of the household of faith and whom the Apostle has, in express terms, recommended to our care in everything. 6, verse 10. In short, all our prayers ought to bear reference to that community which our Lord has established in His kingdom and family. Section 39. This, however, does not prevent us from praying specially for ourselves and certain others, provided our mind is not withdrawn from the view of this community, does not deviate from it, but constantly refers to it. For prayers, though couched in special terms, keeping that object still in view, cease not to be common. All this may easily be understood by analogy. There is a general command from God to relieve the necessities of all the poor, and yet this command is obeyed by those who with that view give succor to all whom they see or know to be in distress, although they pass by many whose wants are not less urgent, either because they cannot know, are, or are unable to give supply to all in this way there is nothing repugnant to the will of god and those who giving heed to this common society of the church yet offer up particular prayers in which with a public mind though in special terms they commend to god themselves or others with whose necessity he has been pleased to make them more familiarly acquainted it is true that prayer and the giving of our substance are not in all respects alike we can only bestow the kindness of our liberality on those of whose wants we are aware, whereas in prayer we can assist the greatest strangers, how wide soever the space which may separate them from us. This is done by that general form of prayer which, including all the sons of God, includes them also. To this we may refer the exhortation which Paul gave to the believers of his age, to lift up, quote, holy hands without wrath and doubting, unquote. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. By reminding them that dissension is a bar to prayer, he shows it to be his wish that they should, with one accord, present their prayers in common. Section 40 The next words are, Which art in heaven? From this we are not to infer that he is enclosed and confined within the circumference of heaven as by a kind of boundaries. Hence Solomon confesses, The heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. 1 Kings 8, verse 27 And he himself says by the prophet, the heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Unquote. Isaiah 66, verse 1 Thereby intimating that His presence not confined to any region is diffused over all space, that as our gross minds are unable to conceive of His ineffable glory, it is designated to us by heaven, nothing which our eyes can behold being so full of splendor and majesty. While then we are accustomed to regard every object as confined to the place where our senses discern it, no place can be assigned to God, and hence, if we would seek Him, we must rise higher than all corporeal or mental discernment. Again, this form of expression reminds us that He is far beyond the reach of change or corruption, that He holds the whole universe in His grasp and rules it by His power. The effect of the expression, therefore, is the same as if it had been said that He is of infinite majesty incomprehensible essence, boundless power, and eternal duration. When we thus speak of God, our thoughts must be raised to their highest pitch. We must not describe to Him anything of a terrestrial or carnal nature, must not measure Him by our little standards or suppose His will to be like ours. At the same time, we must put our confidence in Him, understanding that heaven and earth are governed by His providence and power. In short, under the name of Father is set before us that God, who hath appeared to us in his own image, that we may invoke him with sure faith, the familiar name of Father being given not only to inspire confidence, but also to curb our minds and prevent them from going astray after doubtful or fictitious gods, with us ascend from the only begotten Son to the supreme Father of angels and of the church. Then when his throne is fixed in heaven, we are reminded that he governs the world, and therefore that it is not in vain to approach him whose present care we actually experience. Quote, he that cometh to God, unquote, says the apostle, quote, Must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, unquote. Hebrews 6, verse 6. Here Christ makes both claims for his Father. First, that we place our faith in him and secondly, that we feel assured that our salvation is not neglected by Him, inasmuch as He condescends to extend His providence to us. By these elementary principles, Paul prepares us to pray aright. For before enjoining us to make our requests known unto God, he premises in this way, quote, The Lord is at hand, be careful for nothing, unquote. Philippians 4, verses 5 and 6. Once it appears that doubt and perplexity hang over the prayers of those in whose minds the belief is not firmly seated, that, quote, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, unquote. Psalm 34, verse 15. Section 41. The first petition is, Hallowed be thy name. The necessity of presenting it bespeaks our great disgrace. For what can be more unbecoming than that our ingratitude and malice should impair, our audacity and petulance should, as much as is in them lies, destroy the glory of God? But though all the ungodly should burst with sacrilegious rage, the holiness of God's name still shines forth. Justly does the psalmist exclaim, According to thy name, O God, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Psalm 48, verse 10 For wherever God hath made himself known, his perfections must be displayed. His power, goodness, wisdom, justice, mercy, and truth, which fill us with admiration and incite us to show forth His praise. Therefore, as the name of God is not duly hallowed on the earth, and we are otherwise unable to assert it, it is at least our duty to make it the subject of our prayers. The sum of the whole is, it must be our desire that God may receive the honor which is His due, that men may never think or speak of Him without the greatest reverence. The opposite of this reverence is profanity, which has always been too common in the world and is very prevalent in the present day. Hence the necessity of the petition, which if piety had any proper existence among us, would be superfluous. But if the name of God is duly hallowed only when separated from all other names and alone glorified, we are in the petition enjoined to ask not only that God would vindicate His sacred name from all contempt and insult, but also that He would compel the whole human race to reverence it. Then since God manifests himself to us partly by his word and partly by his works, he is not sanctified unless in regard to both of these we ascribe to him what is due, and thus embrace whatever has proceeded from him, giving no less praise to his justice than to his mercy. On the manifold diversity of his works he has inscribed the marks of his glory, and these ought to call forth from every tongue an ascription of praise. The Scripture will obtain its due authority with us, and no event will hinder us from celebrating the praises of God in regard to every part of His government. On the other hand, the petition implies a wish that all impiety which pollutes this sacred name may perish and be extinguished, that everything which obscures or impairs His glory, all detraction and insult, may cease, that all blasphemy being suppressed, the divine majesty may be more and more signally displayed section 42 the second petition is thy kingdom come this contains nothing new and yet there is good reason for distinguishing it from the first for if we consider our lethargy in the greatest of all matters we shall see how necessary it is that what ought to be in itself perfectly known should be inculcated at greater length Therefore, after the injunction to pray that God would reduce to order and at length completely efface every stain which is thrown on His sacred name, another petition containing almost the same wish is added: "These Thy kingdom come." Although a definition of this kingdom has already been given, I now briefly repeat that God reigns when men, in denial of themselves and contempt of the world and this earthly life, devote themselves to righteousness and aspire to heaven. Thus, this kingdom consists of two parts. The first is when God by the agency of His Spirit corrects all the depraved lusts of the flesh which in bands war against Him. And the second, when He brings all our thoughts into obedience to His authority. This petition, therefore, is duly presented only by those who begin with themselves. In other words, who pray that they may be purified from all the corruptions which disturb the tranquility and impair the purity of God's kingdom. Then, as the word of God is like his royal scepter, we are here enjoined to pray that he would subdue all minds and hearts to voluntary obedience. This is done when by the secret inspiration of his spirit he displays the efficacy of his word, and raises it to the place of honor which it deserves. We must next descend to the wicked, who perversely and with desperate madness resist his authority. God, therefore, sets up his kingdom by humbling the whole world, though in different ways, taming the wantonness of some, and breaking the ungovernable pride of others we should desire this to be done every day in order that god may gather churches to himself from all quarters of the world may extend and increase their numbers enrich them with his gifts establish due order among them on the other hand beat down all the enemies of pure doctrine and religion dissipate their counsels defeat their attempts Hence it appears that there is good ground for the precept which enjoins daily progress, for human affairs are never so prosperous as when the impurities of vice are purged away and integrity flourishes in full vigor. The completion, however, is deferred to the final advent of Christ, when as Paul declares, God will be all in all, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. This prayer, therefore, ought to withdraw us from the corruptions of the world which separate us from God, and prevent His kingdom from flourishing within us. Secondly, it ought to inflame us with an ardent desire for the mortification of the flesh. And lastly, it ought to train us to the endurance of the cross, since this is the way in which God would have His kingdom to be advanced. It ought not to grieve us that the outward man decays, provided the inner man is renewed. For such is the nature of the kingdom of God, that while we submit to his righteousness, he makes us partakers of his glory. This is the case when continually adding to his light and truth, by which the lies and darkness of Satan in his kingdom are dissipated, extinguished, and destroyed, he protects his people, guides them aright by the agency of his spirit, and confirms them in perseverance, while, on the other hand, he frustrates the impious conspiracies of his enemies, dissipates their wiles and frauds, prevents their malice and curbs their petulance, until at length he consume Antichrist, quote, with the spirit of his mouth, unquote and destroy all impiety, quote, with the brightness of his coming, unquote. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 Section 43 The third petition is, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Though this depends on his kingdom and cannot be disjoined from it, yet a separate place is not improperly given to it on account of our ignorance, which does not at once or easily apprehend what is meant by God reigning in the world. This, therefore, may not improperly be taken as the explanation that God will be king in the world when all shall subject themselves to His will. We are not here treating of that secret will by which He governs all things and destines them to their end. See chapter 24, section 17. For, although devils and men rise in tumult against Him, He is able by His incomprehensible counsel not only to turn aside their violence, but make it subservient to the execution of His decrees. What we here speak of is another will of God, namely that of which voluntary obedience is the counterpart, and therefore heaven is expressly contrasted with earth, because, as is said in the Psalms, the angels, quote, do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word, unquote. Psalm 103, verse 20. We are therefore enjoined to pray that as everything done in heaven is at the command of God, and the angels are calmly disposed to do all that is right, so the earth may be brought under his authority, all rebellion and depravity having been extinguished. In presenting this request, we renounce the desires of the flesh, because he who does not entirely resign his affections to God does as much as in him lies to oppose the divine will, since everything which proceeds from us is vicious. Again, by this prayer we are taught to deny ourselves that God may rule us according to his pleasure and not only so, but also having annihilated our own, may create new thoughts and new minds, so that we shall have no desire save that of entire agreement with His will. In short, wish nothing of ourselves, but have our hearts governed by His Spirit, under whose inward teaching we may learn to love those things which please, and hate those things which displease Him. Hence also we must desire that He would nullify and suppress all affections which are repugnant to His will such are the first three heads of the prayer presenting which we should have the glory of God only in view taking no account of ourselves and paying no respect to our own advantage which though it is thereby greatly promoted is not here to be the subject of request and though all the events prayed for must happen in their own time without being either thought of, wished or asked by us it is still our duty to wish and ask for them And it is of no slight importance to do so that we may testify and profess that we are the servants and children of God, desirous by every means in our power to promote the honor due to Him as our Lord and Father, and truly and thoroughly devoted to His service. Hence of men, in praying that the name of God may be hallowed, that His kingdom may come, and His will be done are not influenced by his zeal for the promotion of his glory, they are not to be accounted among the servants and children of God. And as all these things will take place against their will, so they will turn out to their confusion and destruction. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Waters Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www. Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc., SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26, 3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.